The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. read for you from God's Word, the second chapter of Luke's Gospel, words that are so familiar and need to be listened to with great care because they are that familiar that we hear for certain what God is saying in them. Luke 2, verses 1 through 7. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. This is God's infallible Word. Headline, 2010, Congress unites and finally votes to approve a massive tax relief package, extending the Bush tax cuts for another two years. Headline, from 6 B.C., Caesar Augustus issues a decree that the entire Roman world shall have a census to register people for the purpose of taxation. Across 2,000 years, you can always count on taxes to be in the headlines. And the man who said two things we can always be sure about are death and taxes was absolutely right. Do you realize that every birth of any human child is a marvelous and miraculous event? It brings forth into this world a breathing, conscious body and soul, a being designed by God that will dwell in eternity. My daughter-in-law, Johanna, happens to be a labor and delivery nurse. Oftentimes, she's at our home when she will be leaving from there to go to an evening shift. And I will say to her, and I have said it more than once, Johanna, what an amazing job you have. Just think, unlike some people who go and put in a few hours and sort boxes or keep accounts or something, you go, and at the end of your shift, new lives will have been brought into the world 
by your hands. What a job you have. Amazing. I never cease to be stunned by it. Well, Luke 2 opens with a narration of the most famous birth in all of human history. You wouldn't know it, though. With the little amount of space that is given to it, only seven verses, these first seven verses of chapter 2 out of the approximately 1,000 verses of the Gospel of Luke tell the story. And in fact, only two of those, verses 6 and 7, announce it in such a low-key way, so matter-of-factly, you look at it and you say, is that all you're going to say about it? It's almost amazing. We're told how Jesus entered the world of first-century Rome, whose empire at that time extended from Gaul, where France is today, all down in the Mediterranean region, around into the Middle East, and down across North Africa. And as Jesus came into this world, the ruler was Octavian Caesar. Yes, the Bible calls him Caesar Augustus. His name was Octavian. And Rome and the Senate gave him the title, the August One, the highly lifted up one. And that was the start, actually, of the cult of deifying the Roman emperor, which later went to great extremes. Think of it. Here was a man wearing silks, living in a marble palace in Rome, who could issue a decree. A man who some people in the world said was he was a god. Maybe he was even comfortable with that notion. I don't know. But he could issue a decree, and in the far reaches of his provinces, a place where he himself would never go or know anything much about the details of what we read here in God's Word today, because of his decree, a baby was born in a certain place in fulfillment of prophecy. Here's the miracle of all miracles. The event that 1 Timothy 3.16 comes to say, great is the mystery of godliness, for God was manifested in the flesh. And Caesar Augustus, the phony God, never even knew that it took place. Jesus was born, as we know, into poverty and obscurity. He was Son of God and Savior of the world, but His birth happened so quietly that it was largely ignored, and even the people of the immediate vicinity didn't understand that it was going on. The baby of Mary was no Caesar. He was not a man who play-acted at being a God. He was no less than the true God become a man, God the Creator, God the All-Powerful. God, the omnipresent, all-knowing one, God who made all things become a fragile little baby, 20 inches long and 7 pounds in weight, who entered this world and needed the knife of a rustic carpenter to cut his umbilical cord. Amazing. God plunging from ivory palaces of unapproachable light to the musky darkness of an animal's stall. 
Well, the structure of Luke 2, 1 through 7 is actually very simple. Luke tells us here, first of all, about the timing of the birth of Jesus, and then a little about the place of that birth. My two main points are following that structure, first about the time, then about the place, and I want to follow it with some questions that might help us apply this text more directly to our lives. Listen to Luke telling us here about the discovery of God in the Bethlehem straw. First of all, verses 1 to 5 talk about the timing of his great birth. And I would summarize this theme by saying a census by a proud Caesar met up with the plan of a sovereign God. Now, as I told you, the Caesar's original name was Octavian. He was actually the great nephew of Julius Caesar, the first of men to be called Caesar in Rome. You know Julius Caesar was murdered by political rivals in Rome. And after that, for a while, there was no clear Caesar. And along came another powerful man, Mark Antony, And Mark Antony and Octavian were rivals. No one was quite sure. There was a civil war going on. Nobody was quite sure which of them would emerge as the ultimate ruler. Mark Antony threw his alliances in with the queen of Egypt, Cleopatra. You've heard of her. And Antony and Cleopatra united against Octavian at a great battle, the Battle of Actium, and Octavian won. And so when that battle was over in 31 B.C., Octavian was the clear winner, and the 36-year-old man became emperor over all that huge territory of that time, the territory of Rome. He earned this title, Augustus, because it seemed as his rule went underway, this man could do no wrong. I would compare him a little bit to a, a Dwight Eisenhower after World War II. General Eisenhower coming into the White House in a time of peace was able to build up our country and its highways and so on. That was similar to Octavian. He brought peace after a long time of war, the Pax Romana. And into that peace, he was able to do many things, civil works, building highways and bridges. He started a postal system. He actually led an honest government that had integrity. And he donated funds to sponsor the arts. Poets like Horace and Ovid prospered in his time. Great statuary. They say that the city of Rome before Octavian came was a brick city, and after Octavian, it was a marble city. Well, to do those things, you need money. And so Octavian said, we've got to find out who lives in this empire, and we've got to tax them. And thus came these decrees of a census in all the far provinces so we could find out how to tax people. They also were finding out what men would be available for military service, but in any case, a census. And so it went out from Gaul up what we call France today on down to Spain and all across Italy and North Africa and the Middle East. People were enrolled so they could be taxed. And so this powerful arm of Caesar reached out to squeeze tribute from one humble man in a little out-of-the-way town called Nazareth, the carpenter Joseph. It's so interesting, you know, at the beginning of this gospel, we remember 
how in the first four verses of chapter 1, Luke said he was trying to do careful historical research, and he checked his facts. And, and so he tied this census down and said this was the first of a series of censuses that took place when Quirinius was the governor in Syria. For many years, skeptics railed at that. They said, we never heard of this Quirinius. Well, Luke doesn't know what he's talking about. Fascinating. The mid-20th century brought ancient documents and records on clay tablets to light the told of Quirinius, and told that Quirinius served in Syria at an earlier time than people had expected. And indeed, in 6 BC, there was a census which Quirinius administered. If you don't know that, that's an interesting date. Perhaps you're here thinking to yourself, well, wait a minute, wasn't Jesus born in the year zero or the year one or something like that? After all, didn't they base the calendar on his birth? Well, they tried to base the calendar on his birth, but they got it wrong when they did it. Jesus was almost certainly born in either 6 or 5 B.C., the exact time when this little-known census was launched by the governor of Syria that reached into Palestine. Now, besides identifying Roman events that surrounded that first Christmas, Luke also knew that Old Testament prophecy needed to be fulfilled and that Micah 5 had told that it would be the little town of Bethlehem, which was David's original city. Micah 5, 2 has that prophecy. Out of Bethlehem, though you are smallest of the clans of Judah, will come the one who is ruler over Israel, whose origins are from of old. And the question then is, how does a young woman about to bear a child who lives in Nazareth that is 90 miles from Bethlehem, 90 miles north, with hilly country in between, in a day when young people or, or any people of her poor status would rarely leave the town or village that they began in and maybe never in their whole lives get 20 miles away, why would the baby of Mary of Nazareth be born 90 miles away in Bethlehem? Well, it took the mechanism of a census. And a census, of course, has a time to it, and you're told to come and report to the city of your birth and do it within this time frame. And so Joseph went. We might even ask ourselves, why is it that a woman eight or nine months pregnant would go along? Why couldn't she just stay in Nazareth? I can't answer that with any great authority, but if you just think about the situation, the probable whispers of scandal that surrounded Mary, the questions about her, she needed the protection of her husband-to-be. And if he was going to Bethlehem, then she would go too. And for all the pictures on all the Christmas cards that show her jogging along on the donkey, that's possible. It's just as possible and perhaps more probable that she walked eight or nine months pregnant, 90 miles to Bethlehem. The question is, who orchestrated this? And the answer is, God did. God put all these events to bring Mary and Joseph to that town that was prophesied, the town of Bethlehem, at just the time so that within days of her delivery time, they would arrive there. Charles Spurgeon said of this, autocratic Caesars are but puppets 
moved on an invisible strings by the king of kings. Octavian was totally unconscious of the fact that his census influenced and in a sense staged this most momentous of births in all the history of the world. He never even knew it happened. But we can see here a beginning of a fulfillment of what Mary's song told us last time, Luke 1, 51 and 52. She sang God's praise and said, God has brought down rulers from their thrones and lifted up the humble. Here's God using the decree of a man with absolute power to accomplish exactly what he willed. When are we going to learn that God can turn the heart of kings and presidents and prime ministers and congresses to do his bidding regardless of what aims and ends they are designing to do as they make decisions? In the final analysis, does it really make a difference who's in the White House? Does it ultimately make a difference whether it is a man of evangelical faith that claims Christ as his Lord or a man of no identifiable faith? God's large-scale plans in history are not dependent on whether the Republicans or the Democrats control Congress, ladies and gentlemen. Rulers can do nothing but what God allows Evil men who even hate the word of the Lord, it's been shown time and time again, are nothing but soft clay in the hand of God. When he has a purpose to accomplish, it will be accomplished. God's decree for the birth of his son in a particular time, a particular place, dovetailed with Caesar's decree for a totally different aim and goal And God, through that ruler, brought it to pass. It was no accident. It was no coincidence. It was a marvel of divine destiny. And Christians, you and I must believe this in our times. Our times are no different. This principle of the sovereign oversight of God and his providence working its way out through people who hate him, people who design against him, people who fly airplanes into skyscrapers, God accomplishes his aims. Nothing happens that he does not permit to happen. And you can trust in that sovereign control. You can trust in the benevolence of his plan that is always at work. A census by a proud Caesar dovetailed perfectly with the plan of a sovereign God. Well, secondly, I'd have you look at verses 6 and 7. I would almost nominate these two verses to be the two most underwhelming verses of the New Testament, aren't they? When you think of what they announce, it's so ordinary. It's so matter-of-fact. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born. She gave birth to her son, wrapped him in cloths, placed him in a manger because there was no room in the inn. I'll tell you, here's the word of God's Son delivered in a stable of straw. And I look for a drum roll. I love the tippity drum. We have them here. They they add so much to, to our music. I look for a thousand of them to be rolling. I look for not 
a half dozen or more pieces of brass instrument. I look for an orchestra or five orchestras of trumpets blaring. People of earth, look what's happening. But we don't have anything like that, do we? I'm sure you all have some idea of the fine places where American mothers can deliver their children today. We in Lancaster have it great. The Women and Babies Hospital, along with other places that babies are delivered in this area, are state-of-the-art. Everything's antiseptic, comfortable, trained staff, great private room where dad can spend the night. We, we had our kids too early because they tell me about the food at women and babies. Now, you younger ones know what I'm talking about. That after the baby's born, you get to order prime rib and crab cakes. Two of my sons say this is a great incentive to having more kids. They say it's better than any restaurant. And you're not charged extra. What a wonderful, safe feeling experience you can have bearing a child today. You know, we're just so familiar with the story and the pictures of it on Christmas cards and Mary with her blue gown and everything sort of romanticized and seen through gauzy light. We just don't get the raw reality of what this actually was. A 15 or 16-year-old, probably at most, Mary no older than that, mother-to-be, Her mom was not along for the trip, nor was a sister or any female companion. Her only protector and comforter and midwife was going to be a husband who probably was more scared about what he expected was about to happen than she was. You women who've had children, try to put yourself in that picture. What exactly did no room at the inn mean? There's a little research about what inns of that day were like. Bethlehem was a very small town, and it's probable that it did not have a a very large established inn. It wasn't on a trade route. It just wasn't one of those places that needed to house a lot of travelers. And, And if you could, you always tried to stay with a relative or a friend of a friend. That was the best kind of lodging because maybe you wouldn't have lice or rats or everything that went with the inns. They were not Motel 6s. They were not Marriott's, I could guarantee you. And many of these inns, in fact, were meant to accommodate camel caravans. And records show that they would be built in sort of a, around a hollow square with like a courtyard, and around the perimeter would be lean-tos, maybe open on one side or a little more than shacks that you would stay in, and then you'd put your animals, your camels, and goods out there in the center, and and the landlord, if he was generous, would provide firewood for a common fire, and everybody could come and cook their dinner there. But it certainly wasn't commodious, you know, don't think swimming pool or exercise room or anything like that, or chocolate on the pillow. But possibly Bethlehem didn't even have that. All we know is that Jesus was born in a place where animals were kept because it tells us that his crib was a feed box, a place where you put feed. I I always like to think it was a nice little barn. Isn't that what we, we usually, oh, the inn must have had a nice warm barn, nice and snug behind the inn. When I was a Cub Scout 
age nine, our craft project for the fall season was building barns. We had a father who was a devoted Catholic man, and he wanted us to build this, and then we bought plastic figures from Woolworths. They cost $2 of my own money. Mary had 29 cents written on the bottom of her figure. I remember that distinctly. And that was a gift to my family, this barn, about a foot square or so, about a foot high. It's still in my basement today. And that was my family's crash scene for years after that. So I guess it was a nice barn, right? Well, we don't even know that. And in fact, there's a better guess at what kind of a place it was because Bethlehem was known as a place where there were many caves. And those caves were used as a kind of public warehouses to store grain or foodstuffs and sometimes to shelter animals and And that's true, and and it's verified that Bethlehem had these caves. And we have good testimony because an early church father named Justin Martyr, one of the earliest of the church fathers, wrote about 160 A.D. about the certain cave in Bethlehem, which had been revered for many decades before that as the place of Christ's birth. Now, that's only a century after, and so there's a pretty decent possibility that that was valid oral remembrance by the citizens of Bethlehem. And in fact, later Constantine, the Christian emperor, came along in 326 A.D. and built the Church of the Nativity, an octagonal basilica over that cave. Many of you have visited there, as I have. You go down the steps to a grotto or a basement, and there on the floor is this gold star. People, it's a little bit of a turnoff because people will kneel and kiss the star on the floor, in the spot where Jesus was supposedly born. Well, we don't know exactly, but a cave's a real good possibility. And what is a cave? A hole in the ground. A hole in the ground for the Son of God. Have you heard about the preparations for the marriage of Prince William? Wow. Millions and millions of dollars are going to be spent on this wedding. The greats of the world will come. I understand Westminster Abbey can only hold about 2,200 people. Wow, imagine the jousting among the great, the nobility, the important people to be one of those 2,200. And the money that's going to be poured out, nothing spared on this great event, the marriage of a future king. Well, you would think... Didn't Jesus deserve even better than that? Didn't he deserve a gold coach to ride in, pulled by matched horses with guards in their livery? Didn't he deserve choirs singing and orchestras playing and the kind of fireworks show they put on before the Olympics games opens up? Didn't he deserve the creation that he helped to make with galaxies sending out meteor showers in the night, trees bowing low, and rocks crying, glory! But he didn't get any of that, did he? We weren't there, but we can pretty much imagine what it was actually like. Joseph shoved a cow to one side and tied it up out of the way so Mary could have a corner. And if he found the shovel, he scraped away the manure and found the freshest straw he could find and put it down for her to lie on. 
And soon the pains were coming hard, and she was panting and sweating and shrieking. And the pains got harder, and the blood came, and the birth smells mingled with the manure, and finally the moment came with a last scream from Mary, and the trembling carpenter's rough hands took hold of the slippery Son of God with arms waving as if he had fallen from an infinite height, which indeed he had. And his first cry pierced the night. That's what it was really like when God became man. And as we conclude today, I ask this, why? Why was Jesus the Christ of history born in such circumstances? Can we take any kind of lesson from this? Can we learn anything? Well, I would say, first of all, we can say it does establish the utter base humanity of Jesus, doesn't it? There's no mistaking him for some mythical God who came riding in on the clouds in a golden chariot pulled by white horses. This boy is earthy. This boy has the DNA of a Galilean peasant woman. He has eyes and a mouth and toes and fingers, and his mother nursed him at her breast the way any mother feeds a newborn child. This was a real human boy. It means the God of the universe entered fully into our situation and gave us Jesus, a man who could laugh and cry and feel pain and feel hunger and understand human brokenness, a man who had all the nerves in his body that your body has when it is hurt, who really felt the driving of those nails into his feet, and a man with a real body that God could gloriously raise on the third day so we could know that only God's power could do such a thing. Besides showing us his real humanity, it tells us a second thing. Jesus was born in the absurdity of a cow stall with most of human beings around at the time too busy to notice him in order to signify that he would remain unrecognized and unwelcome for most of his time on earth. Do you ever think about the fact Jesus lived at most 35, possibly 36 years? We're pretty sure he died in 30 A.D., born in 6 B.C. Ninety percent of his life, he was a tradesman, and people in his village didn't even think he was anything exceptional. You, you went to him to get a chair fixed or said, Jesus, can you come over and do a new roof for me? And then he came forward for three amazing, tumultuous years in which he was accepted only by a few people, and even the closest of those devotees didn't understand him and had stark questions about him by the time he died. His family at one time thought he was insane. The leaders of the synagogue in his hometown went to stone him when he came to preach there. And John 1 says he came to his own, and his own didn't receive him. But to as many as did receive him, he gave the power to become the children of God. One commentator says when Christ first came, humanity pushed him into an outhouse, and most people have tried to keep him there ever since. If you say that sounds outrageous, then I 
put the challenge back to you and say, do you have a place of honor open to him? Do you grant him a throne in that place of your life and mind and will where you make important decisions, where you decide what you care about and what you will give your dearest affections to? Or do you keep him out at the periphery too, except when it might be convenient to you once in a while? And finally, the manner of the birth of Jesus demonstrates to us that everything God did in Christ was done in condescension and in humiliation. You see, we have an idea that God is just an extension of us, and therefore he's just a bigger version of a man, a little more grandiose, you know, kind of like a great old philosopher, a a grandfather, a a wise man, uh, maybe ten times bigger and better than me, but, but just an extension of me. No. No. If you became an ant, if you became a mosquito, you would not descend in a more utterly humiliating way than the infinite eternal God did in becoming a human being. And even if he had become the son of Caesar Augustus, the son of the the most powerful guy around, it would have been an infinite condescension for God to do that. But the obvious humility, the the bowing low, the stooping down of his manner of birth set a pattern for the whole life of Jesus because it had to take him lower still. That's what Philippians 2 says. God humbled himself even unto death and even unto the worst death, the death on a cross. And by going as low as he could go, God would raise him to the highest place of all and give him the name that is above every name. And by you putting your faith in that infinite Son of God who came so low, he would raise you high too. Raise you to be able to see his face. Raise you into the hope and the certainty of infinite glory forever and ever. This is the way God does things. What a marvel. What a God. Our Father, we pray that we might celebrate Christmas with more gusto and praise and energy than we ever have before. That its truth would never be stale that the way of life open to us in Jesus who came so low would be fresh and alive and vibrant. I pray this be true for some who have never seen it before, that they would sing hallelujahs to you as from the roots of their soul. For your honor and praise we pray it. Amen.